So I went into the field and I did my discovery. They'd hired me to find, okay, can we do this better than we did this in the pilot? So as I'm there, what I discover is that they played games with clients. They were tricking people and they were being salesy, yes. They would say, look, unless you buy this toilet, there's gonna be a government inspector coming behind me and they're gonna find you, you know, and they're gonna take your cow. And I swear, there was a direct quote from the head sales manager there, but he says, we have to lie in order to sell. You know, my eyes got so hot. <laughs> like, did you just say that? <laughs> Is this a translation problem <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> oh, God. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Scott Roy. Now, Scott's the CEO at Witten & Roy Partnership and co-author with Roy Witten of a new book titled Sell Well, Do Good, Decision Intelligence Selling for Social Enterprises. In our conversation today, we're talking about something very different, which is selling in non-commercial settings. I said, this is not a topic we talk about a lot or at all, but we're going to dive into the importance of effective selling, effective selling systems and processes to many social enterprises. Now, we often hear about people and companies that are working in developing countries to improve agriculture production with, let's say, pest-resistant crops or increasing access to clean water supplies or improve general health through access to effective sanitation systems. And as Scott shares, the success of all these programs depends on, to some large extent, on effective selling. He shares some fascinating stories about how effective selling systems help social enterprises in developing countries to become self-sustaining and to be able to fulfill their missions of serving more people. So as Scott and I get into it, we're talking about selling in ways that truly have an impact on the lives of the people involved. So again, to this and much, much more. But before we get to Scott, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. We'd certainly appreciate it. All right, let's jump into it. Scott, welcome to the show. Or should I say welcome back to the show? Hey, thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. I'm glad to be back. Good to see you again. And you're joining us from where again? I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee today. So I just uh, got back from a a rather lengthy trip. Uh, I've been gone for five weeks and uh, just got back from Southeast Asia where uh, I was located for some work. Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to dive into that. But you were in Cambodia so for five weeks, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely country. I've, I've spent, I think, over the last fourteen years, I've spent about three years of my life there. It, really? it, the last time I, I calculated, it, yeah. So uh, it's a place I'd love to go to for work. I mean, for for work or for pleasure, quite frankly. Sure, sure. But uh, but it's mostly for work now that I go. So. And you were saying this was your first ventures are post-pandemic or not post-pandemic, but since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, 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 we're mid-pandemic now, is apparently. Yeah, actually, um, I've been traveling back and forth to London since last August. Okay. Um, yeah, because my, uh, you probably don't remember this, my wife and daughter live primarily in England, and then I live primarily in the United States, just because I enjoy living here more than England. And, uh, 
<laughs> and uh, not to offend any English people, it's just I like a little more space. And uh, so, so anyway, I've been back and forth, I think probably about seven or eight times uh, over the last year. But this last trip, I actually flew to Cambodia and it was quite a, it was quite an experience going through all the different airports that are empty. I mean, these, you know, like Seoul in South Korea beautiful airport and it's like they only have 40 flights a day if that and it's just it's just cavernous it was just such a dystopian experience <laughs> you know so um but yeah but uh, the flight was great except you have to wear a mask the whole time so <laughs> yeah yeah on, on those long flights but yeah the uh, interesting because yeah i've been flying more recently and yeah. so going back and forth new york and mm-hmm. i mean airports are as full as at the peak, but they certainly seem pretty busy. Well, the, the American American airports are. There's no question yeah. about that. And I mean, when I was flying flying in and out of Heathrow, I mean, literally, they only had I think out of that terminal, I think they had 30 flights a day. And you know, I mean, Heathrow's just hundreds and hundreds of flights a day. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I I remember being in the British Airways lounge. If you've ever been there in London. Oh yeah. 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 So in, yep. in, the, in the business lounge, it was just huge. Yep. yep. And yep. there were three people in the lounge in the morning. <laughs> three, three people, including me. And I had that several times where that happened. And it was like weird. I mean, walking through completely empty, massive buildings, you know. So anyway, that's uh, I think internationally, it's just a different different ball game right now. Yeah. And the, and the last point is the British Airways business class lounge and Heathrow has great food. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love it because, you know, when you're, when you're in the, in the terminal, you know, you, you, you go through the, the first class section there because of a certain status with flying yes. and, uh, and, and then you're allowed to go right in through a special sort of, uh, um, uh, place where they've got uh, security and it's only, you know, a handful of people go through it there at a time. And then you just go right into the lounge. It's, it's spectacular. <laughs> One of my favorite places. <laughs> For those that fly a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, those that fly a lot. It's yeah. It's funny. I haven't, because I think I'm part of the pandemic is we just, one thing you don't see us or hear as much as, you know, there are sure. war stories about business travel. In the That's, last right. That's right. Months, um, That's right. That's uh, right. It's nice to sort of start thinking about it again. I mean, I, I went 15 months without flying, and I think that was, I calculated that was, uh, I almost hate to say how long it was since I'd, I'd gone that long without being on an airplane, but it was uh, wow. a really long time. So. Yeah. Well, last year when I, I, we had been skiing in Italy, I mean, t- talk about fate, uh, you know, really waving a red rag in front of a, 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 a raging bull. I flew into Italy to meet with our director of marketing who lives in Italy in Milan area. Right. Mm-hmm. I fly in there on the 13th of February last year, <laughs> right into basically ground zero Lombardy, you know? And, uh, and, um, and then we went skiing for a week afterwards. So I was there like 10 days in Northern Italy and then left. And then, and then I said goodbye to my wife and daughter. They flew back to London. I flew back to the United States and, and literally I didn't see them again for six months. Wow. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, quite an experience. We all have our stories, don't we? So, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. I mean, it's, yeah, especially in that, that type of separation, Zoom doesn't really no. fill the bill. I mean, it's better than nothing, but yeah, it doesn't that's really right. Fill. That's right. Um, all right. Well, last, last time you were here, which I think was last year, 2020. Yes. About now, actually. Yeah. Just about yeah. now. 
We were talking about your book, Decision Intelligence Selling. Uh, you've yeah. written with your co-author, Roy Witten, who right. joined us last night. He's not, where's Roy today? Roy is, Roy is in, a, in, a, in, a, in the beginning stages of retirement. You know, he's, uh, he's 74 now, you know, and he's, I mean, he's in great shape. You know, he's got, he's got, uh, he's got a lot of life in him left, but it's time for him to spend more time with his grandkids. And so over the last year, he's been slowing down a little bit, you know, uh, so the five week trips to Cambodia, not as high a priority list for him these days. Well, he doesn't do that stuff. I, I'm the one who goes to you do that. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty much the guy who goes to the developing countries. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, got it. Yeah. Well, you've got a new book we're going to talk about, which yeah. um, called "Sell Well, Do Good," which right. is applying your decision intelligence selling for social enterprises, which is That's fascinating. Right. You've, you've always had an element of that to your work. Yeah, um, actually, it's really sort of a at least interesting to me and and to Roy <laughs> because we started as sales uh, consultants in London back in two thousand and six, two thousand nine is when mm-hmm. we started our, our firm, and um, and I I'd had an experience, and, and so th- that selling was all done with or, or all the work we did was with B two B organizations. Uh, large companies, a lot of global uh, type companies, and and basically um, that's what the blue book, decision intelligence selling, was written for. It's really for B two B selling for you know for you know sort of Western markets that kind of thing, and um, and the new book is is written more uh, toward the developing countries where selling happens, but is done for for slightly different purpose and different reasons, and uh, so basically we started experimenting with this. I did personally in 2008. Uh, And I went to Cambodia and uh, I was working with an organization there called International Development Enterprises. And I was helping them to develop um, a sales program for agriculture to sell seeds and very inexpensive implements to poor farmers, rice farmers that would live on basically the land. They only had an acre of land, mm-hmm. basically, to raise their very, you know, very uh, poor families, quite frankly. And so I, we began working with, organi- or I began working with organizations at the time to help them learn how to sell in order to sell these products at reasonable prices. And then actually when people would buy these implements and things, they would use them more than in the old model where they were just given this stuff by aid agencies. They would use them for a while, then they would throw them away or they wouldn't really use them at all, you see. And so what's, what happened in philanthropy about 20 years ago was there was this move toward um, using business as the way to deliver services to the poor. And if the poor would, would and, and we're talking about really poor people, you know, they would buy a latrine or buy a water filter or mm-hmm. buy uh, seeds. And, you know, like, like anyone, we know that when people buy with their own money, they're invested. They're, they're, they're likely going to take care of what they invest their, their money in. And so that's the, that's the secret to social enterprise and why selling is such an important part of that. Well, it's fascinating when you think about it because you're talking about people who are, in the case of like the example you're giving, subsistence practicing subsistence agriculture. Yeah. Um, and I imagine there aren't a lot of, you know, enterprises, whether it's an NGO or mm-hmm. whatever, how you classify these organizations, yeah. out there providing 
the tools and the seeds and the things they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting. And it, reading through the book and some of the examples, it's like, yeah, you can sort of see where, you know, philanthropically, uh, yeah, in the past, maybe it was a grant of some sort or, you yeah, know. That's right. But, but where does the, it's just fascinating to think about. It. So tell people where the selling part comes in because you're sure. selling to people that basically sort of have, <laughs> don't have a lot of choice. Right, right. Well, so basically, um, you know, this this idea of supplanting or replacing uh, philanthropy, just giving stuff away, like building a toilet, for example. They've, mm-hmm. they've done this in India for years, you know, where they've gone in and spent you know, millions, even billions of dollars building toilets in, in, you know, in India for people who tend to do open defecation. That's how they take care of themselves. Right. And uh, so they would build these, these latrines and then they would go back and find that they, the farmers and these families weren't using them at all. They continued to go to the bathroom out in the field. And they started, they, they looked at what was inside the, the bathroom was there. And that's where they started storing like their hay and the, you know, food for the animals and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, it was like a building to them, you know? Sure. And uh, so, so that's the problem with giveaways is that oftentimes people who receive don't really appreciate what it is be, that's been given to them. And they really haven't bought in, literally, they haven't bought into the idea of using a toilet. You say, so, so really what's happened in the developing world over the last 20 years is this concept of organizations who serve the poor. And this can be, as you say, NGOs, or it can be uh, a small business that has a social mission or purpose, what we often call a social enterprise. They, mm-hmm. The mission they're on is more important than the profit, or at least as important as the profit is concerned. Right. And so, and so by, by selling to the poor, two things happen. Number one is the, the poor will buy what they really want and then use it. And that's really key is, is, to, is to buy it and use it because that's how their lives improve. That's how their health improves. That's how, you know, their, their, you know, their livelihoods can be improved or their, their life be improved, you see. Mm-hmm. So in many different ways. Um, but the second thing is, is that it generates income for the organization that does the selling. So therefore, it makes them less reliant on being grant funded, you say, mm-hmm. and so therefore they have a little bit more self-determination in their ability to decide how they're going to go to market, you say. So, the, you know, development approaches where you give stuff away versus selling and building a business have very, very different ways uh, of thinking. I mean, very, very different ways that you would build organizations like that. And so, therefore, I mean, we've been spending a lot of time working with organizations that are coming out of the giveaway model and they want to go over to the, you know, to the for-profit model because there's so many benefits to it, uh, you know, of, of creating some of that independence for themselves, as well as being able to, you know, do good that really sticks where people buy in and they buy it and they use it. So give us an example of, you know, companies that are making that, that transition. Sure. Absolutely. In fact, I was on the phone just yesterday with an organization uh, called Water for People. Okay. Now, Water for People is a charity. They receive grant funding. They're based out of Denver, Colorado. They work in nine countries around the world, mm-hmm. uh, three in Africa, and, or I guess it's eight countries, three in Africa, three in Central America, two in, in South America. And we were talking about the challenges they're facing with 
moving because they do a lot of work with market-based, what they call market-based solutions or private sector solutions, which is essentially, uh, you know, making markets work uh, for the poor, basically. Um, so what they what they do is they get in and they work with all of the different actors. So this could be people who are producing a toilet, let's say, and then and the, the, what they're selling is water for people. What's their product or service that they're selling? Yeah, what they're, what they're doing is they're literally working on the value chain to connect the different actors so that it provides services that can be sold then to the poor. So water for people literally isn't selling anything. What they're doing is they're is they're building the value chain. You say building the value chain that actually delivers these products to the poor, provides a way to pay for them, make sure there is service, you know, service uh, or repair that's available to them, et cetera. You say, so, you know, if you buy a toilet, for example, who's going to build it? Who's going to, you know, who's going to then maintain mm -hmm. it? Who's going to, you know, take care of the fecal sludge when it builds up and you've got to empty your silo, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then, and then when you want to improve on that, you know, how are you going to do that? Well, and, and how do you pay for it? Well, you know, you've got to borrow money from somebody. And so that's what a microfinance institute right. might be. So it's all these different actors in the market are all disjointed in developing countries. And what organizations like Water for People are doing are pulling and creating these value chains, you see, that then serve the poor and do it more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, sort of supply chain even, you might say. Yeah, um, yeah. supply chain, same thing. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Value chain, supply chain. And then, so what is Water for People selling? Then. Well, they're they're literally the the nonprofit organization that is that is doing all of this work. You say so they're grant funded. They're not right. selling anything except the ideas. I mean, they, they certainly are selling. You know, they're selling each of these actors on why they need to trust each other. You know, why you know the end result is going to be worth the effort. Why the MFI should be why the microfinance institutions should be you know, lending the money to the poor, et cetera. You know, all of that, all of those are sales being made, you know, it's influence that's being made mm -hmm. in order mm -hmm. to bring this all together. Otherwise it wouldn't change, you see. So, so that's what they're in it. But, but what they need is they need to have employees that don't think like an NGO. They need employees that think like business people, you see. So that would be an example of, right. you know, moving from sort of a, uh, an, an NGO mentality or a charity mentality over into a business mentality where you're really thinking about how do I help this organization make a profit? How do I help them, you know, alleviate the constraints that are going on in their business so that they can actually succeed? You say, so that requires somebody who understands how business works. Yeah. So how does, in that environment then is, and maybe we just take a step back is, is sure. you know, how do we, how do they, or how are you helping them? So apply the principles, what you called your decision intelligence, into yeah. the work they're doing. So maybe just start by taking a step back and telling people, reviewing for them, if they didn't listen to the previous episode, what decision intelligence is, and sure. then how they're working to you know, incorporate this type of, of sales intelligence into the work of these nonprofits and NGOs. Sure, sure. Well, basically, um, as you know, uh, decision intelligence is all about it is all about helping buyers make the very best possible buying decision, as opposed to the type of selling that is so often characterized on television. And in fact, that many, many people do, you know, which right. is just pitching and persuading and, you know, arm twisting and, you know, selling ice to Eskimos and all that kind of stuff. And right. what decision intelligence selling is, is, is it really is a, it starts not with the solution that we're trying to get you to buy, but it starts with the problem that you have 
that you may be fully aware of or only partially aware of and maybe not aware of at all mm-hmm. but you want to that once you become aware of it you're going to want to solve it you see right. and so in and you do that by exploring two major topics one is what is the problem you're trying to solve and really understanding it at a much deeper level and that's what the salesperson does who sells with decision intelligence approach and then once the the client understands the depth of the problem and what it is costing them literally financially then the simple question is is the problem painful enough and is it costly enough that I want to do something about it and then that's when we come in with a solution if we have a solution if we don't we then we can point them in a direction of where they can find somebody who can do a solution for them or you can craft your own solution or provide the solution you have that is going to solve that client's problem and give a good return on investment and so how that's used and how we use that in the in the developing world or just like in the commercial world is that is that every interaction you have where you're trying to get somebody either to buy something or you're wanting to influence them to take an action and commit to that action, they can follow that decision intelligence pathway. And so what we do is we get into organizations, we find where their problems are with achieving either one of those goals uh, of, of either selling more products or uh, getting organizations to change their behavior and say, yes, I want to do that, and you've mm-hmm. committed to doing that. I'm a partner. I'm bought in. And so we teach organizations how to implement that type of a selling uh, process in their organization because, quite frankly, Andy, what's happened is that all of the stuff that we think about from pitching and persuading and all the ugly stuff about selling, yep. uh, the manipulative stuff, has made its way into the developing. It's there. It's already there. You know. And when we go in, I mean, I, I tell you a quick story. I went to Cambodia one time, and uh, one of my very first clients there was in the sanitation business. Okay, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had given them seven million dollars. World Bank had given them five hundred thousand. The Stone Family Foundation had given them two and a half million dollars. So they had nine million dollars. They were going in there, and they were going to install seventy thousand toilets with a market-based sanitation program where they were going to sell toilets. Now, they had done a pilot to prove the concept, and that's why they got this big scale-up money. Mm-hmm. And so I went into, the, went into the field, and I did my discovery. They'd hired me to find, okay, can we do this better than we did this in the pilot? So as I'm there, what I discover is that they, are, they played games with clients. They were manipulating. They were tricking people. They were... You know, they were saying, look, if you don't buy this toilet. Being salesy is what I call it. They were being salesy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> if they, they would say, look, unless you buy, unless you buy this toilet, you know, uh, there's going to be a government inspector coming behind me and, and they're going to fine you, you know, and they're going to take your cow. You know, that kind of game, you know. And right. I, I swear they, there was a direct quote from the head sales manager there. I won't say his name because I want to embarrass him. But he says, I, you know, he says, I have to, we have to lie in order to sell. And I went, you know, my eyes got so <laughs> like, like, did you just say that? Is this a translation problem or whatever? Well, I hey, said, oh, it's fraud from throughout the world. Yes. Go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. So, you know, and there are lies and then there are, you know, sort of, you know, half truths, which I think probably more salespeople are into rather than bold faced lies. But I don't know. We could, we could argue about that. But, but anyway, I, I basically told the organization that what I found 
and they were they were just absolutely blown away. They were so upset. They had no idea that this was going on. And so anyway, they hired us and we, you know, we gave the guy a break. We said, look, you know, you can keep your job, but you can't lie anymore. You know, mm-hmm. and so anyway, he says, OK, I'll give it a shot because it's the only job he had. Right. <laughs> so anyway, he turns out to be this amazing sales manager and he does a great he's still with the organization, you know, 12, 13 years later. And in fact, I just just uh, was in the office just the other day in Cambodia and, and saw him. And uh, he's a big convert, you know, obviously, because he realizes right. I don't have to lie. I can sell really honestly just by not pitching the product. But if I'll go in and just really help people understand the problem they've got at a really deep level, then what's going to happen is they're going to be motivated to buy. And mm-hmm. that's the principle of DQ selling, of, right. of, of selling. And, and in, in this case, the reason we, we wrote the book is because we're tired of seeing so much bad selling in the world, and particularly with organizations that are trying to do good. And so, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, we're doing good in the world by misleading people. <laughs> right? You know? Well, and also it seems interesting. It's, I was, you know, thinking about that example because I, you know, that's not going to be different than examples we see anywhere else in the developed world even is, is mm-hmm. that in that case, the sales manager was going in talking to, you know, the potential customer and it seemed like oftentimes in when we're selling in the developed world, the salesperson goes in, there's a status mismatch where the, the customer holds greater status yeah. than the seller. But you're talking about an environment where it's almost sort of flipped on its head, right? That's right. Oftentimes, yeah. 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 And then you serve, yeah, the bully comes out at that point, right? Is why aren't you doing what I want and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you love your family? You know, don't you love yeah. your family? You know, I mean, that kind of garbage. So, but uh, but we we found that actually DQ has has it, it works really really well in the in the well, in the commercial world it works great, but DQ selling works uh, decision intelligence selling. We call it DQ by the way. It's a short for decision intelligence, just like intellectual oh, intelligence. Oh, Dairy like Queen. IQ. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> IQ and, and EQ. You know, Q, DQ is just short. Yeah, we've got. CQ curiosity intelligence, yeah. RQ relational intelligence. Uh, we got lots of lots of cues here. I, I, I thought we were being fairly original when we came up with that, <laughs> but apparently we weren't. <laughs> so, but anyway, it, it, one of the reasons it works so well in the in in the in the developing world is because you're really wanting to change behavior, right? I mean, one of my clients one time had a quite a large grant to do above the line advertising, which I don't really believe works very well in the, in the developing world anyway. Well, explain what you mean by that. Above the line, meaning, meaning uh, like ads on television or radio ads, that kind of thing, as Mm -hmm. opposed to, as opposed to the below the line where you're actually making, you know, door to door contact or direct selling is what that is. And, um, and so uh, I told, I told uh, this woman who was running this program, I said, look, you've got a million two hundred thousand dollars for above the line or for, for marketing and advertising. I said, we're bringing you a, a, a method where I don't think you're going to need it is because we're going to be able to stimulate it because of stimulate the market. Because when somebody makes a sales call on one person or in a group, they're going to take them through the problem that is there to be solved and give an experience to them of that, which is then going to stimulate them to buy. 
I have confidence in that. And mm-hmm. so she said, so she was a bit skeptical about it. She says, look, I'll give you six months. It was a three-year program. And sure enough, six months later, she said, I just can't believe this. I see, she said, "She said, what am I going to do with this million bucks? I said, well, you could give it to us. But, but, uh, but no, I, I said, I said, well, you know, let's fight, let's figure out a way to use it. And so we did it through sales incentives for the team, you say. And then all of a sudden, I mean, they, they were amazing. They actually are the most successful toilet organization in the world. They've sold more toilets than any, any other organization uh, directly. Uh, amazing. Amazing. So there's stories like this all over the globe. I mean, literally, we started in Cambodia in 2008. Um, and, then, and then in um, 2012, we went to Africa. And uh, then we began to start. You know, we were just doing this on the side, quite frankly, Andy. I mean, we, we, we had our major business, which is, you know, business to business, complex selling, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and on the side, we're doing this. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm the one doing this. Roy is taking care of the B2B stuff. I'm also in the B2B stuff. And my, my time goes, you know, 5% of my time and then 10% and then 15 and then 20. And then all of a sudden we're invited to speak at conferences and all this. And what's so interesting about this is that we didn't, we didn't really plan the, this as being what we wanted to do. It's just there was such a huge void there because the concept of social enterprises selling to do good was so new. Nobody was doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we literally, I mean, still even today, we are, uh, well, I, I, I think this is true, but we're the lead organization. There's nobody else really organized to our level with 50 right. consultants and all that uh, to be able to deliver what's being delivered in sales consulting in the developing world. And, um, and we're pleased with that. But... It, it comes at a price, <laughs> you know. I mean, we can't we can't charge the rates that we did no. when we were doing commercial work, but it's very very satisfying and fulfilling. But about ninety percent of our work today is in this type of work, and about ten percent is still in the commercial sector. Although twenty twenty two will be changing that. We're going to be rebalancing that portfolio and growing our B two B business as well. Well, one of the things that I think is so interesting about you know the stories and and what you're doing, you know, from my perspective, is that you know as people listen to the show know I preach about sales being such a human business first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Is that you know this idea that you, regardless of where the customer is located physically and and what their you know circumstances are, making them feel understood mm. is the key to mm. influence influencing behavior everywhere yeah. yeah and it's 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 so overlooked i mean you talk about you know pitching and the coercive persuasion and and you know these behaviors i call salesy that buyers find no value in and they don't work for sellers yeah it's like okay wow this really is sort of a core human thing is people just want to be feel understood. And if they feel understood, mm-hmm. then yeah, they're open to building trust with you and, and enabling you to influence the choices and decisions they make. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, really great selling and, and we've, we've all heard this many, many times, but great selling really starts with great listening and really understanding what the other person's needs really truly are. And, and beyond, and, What's really important here, and what I think in all the salespeople that I've trained over the years, is that they forget that very quickly. 
when they be, when they've done enough sales presentations that they know what's coming at them, you know, as far mm-hmm. as they can oh, almost predict what's going to come at them. And so they sort of go to sleep at the wheel of, of, of why am I listening in the first place? Is it really for my benefit? Find the need and fill it. I've heard that many times. Actually, I want to, I, I, what I would say is it's really the greatest benefit of listening very carefully to a client is the impact on the client, as you've illustrated just a moment ago. And yeah. that, is, that is, as the client is listened to well, they then discover the problem. They begin owning the problem at a much deeper and more profound level. Exactly. And, 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 and that's when the magic happens. You know, that, and that, that's, you know, that's really great selling. You know, when you're able to listen to somebody to the point where they begin to realize what the problem is, they begin to even think about how they're going to solve the problem that they now really want to want to stop, you know, the problem that they've got. And that's exciting. Yeah, well, I, I look at buying in sort of three phases, right? Is, is first phase is just you described. It's what is what are we trying to do? What's the problem? Mm-hmm. And what are what are the outcomes we can achieve by solving the problems? Hmm. And that has nothing to do with the product. Yeah, right. That's all about mm-hmm. understanding what's the most important thing to the buyer. Mm-hmm. Second part of that is then is how, mm-hmm. right? We've mm-hmm. covered the what. Now we're going to go to the how. Just, yeah. Okay. How are we going to solve the problem and achieve the outcomes we want? Sure. Which is from a salesperson's perspective, the first phase was listening to really understand what's most important to them. Mm-hmm. Second phase is about, well, how do I help them get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, not really specifically about products. It's about options. Mm-hmm. And then the, 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 the tertiary concern, the third level decision for the buyer is, okay, well, who are we going to do this with? Mm-hmm. And sellers get it all backwards, mm-hmm. right? We train people, come in and pitch. Yeah. Do the who first. And it's like, well, you can't. What are you pitching? You don't even understand what the problem is. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've had uh, we, we're, where we've, we've trained. This one guy in particular comes to mind. We were working with uh, a large consulting organization in London. And uh, this guy named Steve had his, uh, his presentation he was going to go make in a few days. And during one of the breaks, he pulled me aside. He says, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? And so... He opens up his iPad and he starts showing me his deck, you know, just the deck of mm. slide after slide about us and how great we are. And <laughs> and then by the end of the training, when he finally realized that we weren't teaching him how to do that, we were teaching him how to do the exact opposite. He says, I guess I'm going to leave my slide deck at home now. <laughs> so, so he did and he did. And he, in, in fact, uh, he was, you know, he's done incredibly well. He reached out to me. Actually, he uh, bought uh, decision intelligence selling. He said, finally, my, my old workbook that I got back in 2011 was falling to pieces. Right. And now I got to so finally put in a book, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I, so I guess one question is, and, not going too far away from the original topic, but it's is changing this this fundamental behavior in the sales profession is is proving very difficult. Yeah, and you know we all can acknowledge that the salesiness is not it's just unproductive, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a great book published a year ago, Jonah Berger called The Catalyst uh, talks about. Um, yeah, people have this universal resistance to being persuaded. 
Mm-hmm. The research has shown this. So, yet we fundamentally are still training sellers to lead with persuasion. That's right. That's right. And it's like, yeah, how do we how do we really affect change in the profession? Mm-hmm. Because what's happening, which is no different than really what's happened for a long time, it's I think it's been amplified by you know the the way things just the pace of activity through technology and so on. But it's it's like it still doesn't work. You know, it didn't work fifty years ago. It doesn't work now. Now that we've automated the behaviors, they still don't work. Right. Um, how do we how do we affect change? Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're really speaking to is is the thing that I learned from my business partner Roy, which is the thing that drives human behavior is attitude. Right. And mm-hmm. and, and attitude is is all based around you know beliefs that you have. I mean, and so if you take a look at what we believe about selling. And what the world believes about selling, the world believes that selling is about pitching and persuading. Right. You know? And and in the way that targets are set up, it's all based on, you know, how much did you sell this month, the short-term targets, you know, longer-term targets at three months, you know, and how do I get people across the line and how do I get them to sign on the dotted line and, you know, get the business to run and all that. I mean, that all begs for people to push, persuade, sell hard, get get people to act, you know, fast and that kind of thing. And what, what they don't really understand is that if I can, the psychology of it, if they can understand that really the more I listen to you and I understand the problem you're trying to solve, and the more I help you to understand what it's costing you to not to solve it, you know, with each day that passes, mm-hmm. it, as soon as that's in place, all the motivation to close the sale is already there. All the, all the, all the energy that you need to have that sale cross the line in the right time, in the right, in the right way, in the right size, that's all in place. But the problem is that people jump into pitching in the beginning without defining the problem. There's no urgency at all to maybe solve it unless the person realizes they have to solve it. Um, but the bottom line is, is that, is that, is that we are selling in a way that causes pipelines to clog. It causes sales to slow down. It causes people to doubt us. Right. Whereas doing the exact opposite, which is let me listen to you and not try to pitch you or persuade you, but to listen to you and understand. And maybe you'll understand at a deeper level of what you really want so that you'll have confidence and, and you'll want to act, you know. So that's that's my firm belief, and it sounds like it's yours as well. The oh, yeah. problem the problem is that we've got people, you know, in management that are push, push, push. We got to hit the target. We got to hit the, you know, and all of that, and they don't understand that actually you can get there faster. In fact, I used to say this oftentimes. In fact, I still say it: is that you got to slow down in the beginning in order to speed up at the end. And we do exactly the opposite. We, we speed up at the beginning to try to get the sale across the line quickly, you know, and let's cut out the little chatter here and let's really get to the meat of the matter. And then, and then it takes forever for the sale to close, you see. So it's the exact opposite of what most people think. And that's where the psychology and understanding that sort of pressure that we feel, that once you understand that and you learn some skills to begin managing that stress, then, you know, that can begin to create a dent but management has to support that. Yeah, they talk a good game till the last week of the month comes around. Yeah. Um, which is when you then undermine any sort of connection that you've built with the buyer at that point. Yeah. And we get to sort of, yeah, repeat, rinse and repeat. But 
No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I in my new book coming out in February, talk about this specifically um, about sort of the slowdown to speed up, which is that you know, most buyers aren't out looking to make the absolute best decision. They're out looking to make a decision that satisfies their requirements and is sufficient and suffices to help them hit their desired outcomes. Yeah. And when they do that, when they find that, then they make the decision. Right. So that decision, but if you only happens if you've done as you've said, is you reach that level of understanding, help the buyer reach that level of understanding, then they understand what that good enough becomes. Hmm. And but if you try to push your way past that, you know, if you try to persuade your way past and pitch your way past that that point of understanding. Yeah, as you said, then the trust isn't there in order for the customer to make that that good enough decision. Well, and, and you're guessing, you know, you're, you're guessing at what the problems are. You know, you're, 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 you may know a few of the problems and the markers, but you don't. I, I was just on the phone actually earlier today with our head of sales, and he was saying, he was telling me about a deal in Bangladesh he, he'd been working on. And, he's, and, and I, I told him, I said, Nick, I said, that deal, I thought that deal was dead. <laughs> he goes, he goes, no, no, it's really alive now because what's happened is, is they, you know, during the selling process, they they decided they were going to try to, you know, solve it themselves, mm-hmm. and then and and then and which is fine. People want to do that sometimes, and um, and they came back to Nick because he said because they said, look, everything you said came true. Everything you said was going to happen happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, we, we need to work with you. Well, the only way that could possibly happen is if, if Nick had spent the time and done the yards, the hard yards of listening, learning, putting it together in his head of exactly what the needs are for this client, would he be able to then lay out a, a solution that the client would see that was believable, that actually makes sense, and actually would, they would actually then come back to and say, okay, we're ready to go urgently. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I numerous examples of that I totally yeah include some in my my new book coming up. This is where, especially working as as startup selling large complex mission critical communications networks, you know, stab, against established players, sometimes you know against government owned entities, um, helping the buyer get to that level of understanding was decisive in winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't have trust in everybody else, hmm. right? And hmm. multiple occasions, the customer you know, asked the customer afterwards, well, so why did you make the decision to buy from us? Because you know, we're small, we have no brand name, no track record. Yeah. And they said, you were the only ones that truly understood what we're trying to accomplish. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, really what you were asking a little while ago is how do you, you know, how, Things aren't changing with salespeople. What's that all about? What's where the secret to that? You know, in chapter five of the book um, of, of Sell Well Do Good, and also we have it in Decision Intelligence as well. Is something called autopilot. Is that is that is the way the human mind works? Is we like to automate things and mm-hmm. stop thinking deeply, right? And so, if you, <laughs> in fact, we we lay out two scenarios. One is for the autopilot for a salesperson. And the other one is the autopilot for the sales manager and the behaviors that we typically just lock into that then feed other behaviors that are really uh, self, uh, you know, self uh, limiting 
you know, I, I won't say necessarily destructive, but at least, you know, I'll be kind here and say they're self-limiting, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just when, when people awaken to that and they all of a sudden they wake up and they realize, wow, I should stop pitching and I should start listening. You know, now you've broken through some of that, some of that autopilot that people just fall into, you know, and into old habits that do not serve people very well. You know, in, in fact, we even go as far as to say habits are not good things. Oftentimes it's better to, you know, you don't ever want to go to the point where something becomes, you know, almost unconscious in you or, or in fact, in unconscious. You, you want yeah. to, that's what we call them practices. You know, it's like a practice is something you choose to do and you do it right. on a regular basis. Yeah. As opposed to training. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so part of this, we in in working with teams, is we have to work with them about um, about their attitude. In fact, we we work in three areas. We work in attitude, competence, and uh, and their execution of what they're doing. So, attitude meaning, you know, how do you keep a a, a positive and in you know possibility type of attitude, taking full responsibility for what you're doing, you know, keeping, you know, keeping that expectant attitude in place, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and how do you manage your attitude when it takes a dip? Like when you get an email or a telephone call or right. bad news, right. you know, or you lose a sale, you know, so attitude is critical. And then the second one, which is competence, which is all about selling and, you know, what the methodology is, which is what we're talking about is that, you know, how do you get people to really listen and learn what the problem is someone has so that you can actually go through a decision intelligence model to take the time to do that. Well, it's now that's a combination between the competence to do that and the attitude to cause you to not rush things, you know, not to push through things too fast, you say. And then the last thing, which is execution, is doing the right things at the right time with the right people. And those three things together the attitude, competence, and execution are what drive this, the size of the results that you're going to get. It's, just, it's that simple, you know? And one if, and if yeah. one of those things is off, if attitude is off or competence is off or execution is off, it's less than what it could be, then the results are going to reflect that, you see? So, well, I think, well, I think you're right. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, we're in violent agreement like we were the first time you were on the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think that that attitude, I might relabel that a little bit different as, is, or maybe include as part of that. It's really this perspective. And you touched on it earlier. Is, you know, as a salesperson, what do you think your job is? Sure. Yeah. And if you think your job is to persuade or convince somebody to buy your product, then, which is what I'm sure, you know, 98% of sellers <laughs> think it is, yeah. then you're starting off on the wrong path. Yeah. And I think until we can change that, right? I mean, I, I believe that sales is selling is very simply, and we've sort of again touched on it earlier, is your job as a seller is to listen, to understand what the most important thing is to the buyer, and then help them get that. Mm. That's it's that simple. That's totally. your job. Yeah. But if sellers start off every day thinking, my job is just to I'm gonna have conversations, I'm gonna listen. To truly understand what's the most important thing to that buyer, then put together a plan to help them get that. That's a whole different mindset you come out, and that's oh, like yeah. that forms every action you take. Then, if you think my job is sort of this panic-induced, I have to be pushy and persuasive to get you to buy my product. Well, with decision intelligence, we say that that what the decision intelligence or DQ seller is committed to is is not they're not committed to pitch, persuade, and close the deal. 
what they're committed to is helping the buyer make the best possible decision mm-hmm. that benefits them. Yep. And if I sell in that way, I'm going to sell plenty. I'm going to sell. I'm, I'm going to be in the top levels and the top echelons Absolutely. of sales. It's, yep. And so fundamentally, it's either it's my job to pitch, persuade, and you know get them to buy, or it's my job to help them make the best decision possible to give them the information, give them an experience where they can then get to the end of that experience and know what to do. Uh, all of a sudden, that's a very different experience. It's a very different buying experience. And it's Absolutely. and I, I got to tell you, Andy, it's a very different seller's experience. I mean, I, when I started selling in this way about 30 years ago, all of a sudden, sales lost all the fear that I used to have. Mm-hmm. It lost all the pressure. I stopped feeling the pressure. I stopped feeling, you know, feeling the anxiety of, oh, my God, you know, am I going to be on the scoreboard today or not? You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, really, I I just it's all really over there now. You say it's all over with the buyer, you say, and it's the buyer's process. It's not me as the seller's process. And oftentimes, you know, when we work with organizations uh, that are like in the B2B arena, is we're is we're helping them to retool or, or rethink how they actually set up their CRM because the CRM is all their own selling process, you mm-hmm. know, from their perspective. And we teach people actually. This is in Decision Intelligence, the first book, right. where it's you know the the ten or twelve steps that you want to bake into your, <laughs> you know, into your CRM, which is all from the buyer's perspective. Exactly. And, exactly. and so, that, so those are the steps you take, you know, those are the steps you follow. And you can have your own internal processes that map out against what the ideal buying process is. But, you know, it's really you focus on what is the buyer doing? You know, when I offer the meeting, are they taking it? If not, why not? What's, mm-hmm. what, what's happening over there? Inquire. Mm-hmm. So tell me, I mean, you know, you, you want to think about it for a while. Okay, well, tell me a bit more about that. You know, mm-hmm. now you inquire, you're trying to find out what's blocking them. Right. Simple. And then you try to help them solve it. You say, so anyway, I just, I, I find selling in this way. And I, and I suspect, I mean, not that you call it DQ selling, but I would suspect that you probably sell in a very similar way. And that is to, you know, to really give people the room they need in order to understand what it is they need, what they then want. And, and then, and then why from you, that's for sure. Right. But giving people the room is not, antithetical to delivering on your numbers in the time frame you need to deliver them. And totally. this is it. And what we see increasingly in B2B selling are these, you know, huge requirements on sellers to have, you know, multiples of their monthly number in their pipeline. Yeah. The presumption being that they're not going to close a very high fraction of them. So yep. let's load it up. And yeah, I mean, I typically ran, I went back and sort of calculated, looking at some old reports, it's about five to six years ago I did it, but it's like, yeah, I usually ran you know 1.7 pipeline coverage on big deals for startups where we had to bring them in. Mm-hmm. You, know, yeah, you did, yeah, because yeah. because you're selling in a way that that enabled the buyer to make the right choice. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, you know that, and I think that's something that that executives I think that are the are the people who you know. Or the senior managers have to have to have to be brave, be a little brave here, yep. you know, and 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 hold their breath a little bit, 100%. and give those sales. Good. And it, this is the thing we love about the, what we do is when we find really outstanding leaders. You know, it's like in our first book when we talked about Colin Annette and mm-hmm. Mark Campbell 
and, and, and Mark Jopling and other people who are just outstanding leaders. These are people who were working in very large multi-billion dollar companies uh, and, and they were senior enough to, and, and, and brave enough that they could carve out enough space for their teams to have them learn how to sell in a way that was very different than the rest of the company. And yet they could protect, <laughs> you know, they could protect them from them coming in and doing anything silly. Right. So anyway, so we, uh, we're, we were delighted to be able to have, uh, you know, have uh, people like that featured in our first book. I think our, se- our second book here uh, is, you know, we've got, I think, 21 different interviews of people that are amazing social entrepreneurs. And what's, what's really interesting about this whole thing, Andy, is that, is that we find, you know, this is really a dichotomy here. You know, if you take a look at selling in the developing world, what you might call the emerging or frontier mm-hmm. markets, and then selling over here. Someone is really trying to reach me here. That's, there you go, turn that off. Um, but uh, but uh, to, to, to be able to um, uh, look at the developing world and then look at the commercial sort of Western selling world, and, and, and to think, okay, how in the world can you operate in both of those worlds? They're, they're so different. And I'm here to tell you, you know what? They're not. <laughs> they may well, sp- speak a different language. They may they look a bit different. They may be, be buying something that's $20 or $200 versus $200,000 or $20 million, But the process is the same. Yep. You know, amazing. Absolutely. Amazing people, to me. People are people. And people are people. And there's, yeah, so our last point is just, you know, you read much of literature, they want to have you believe that just, yeah, obviously our world continues to change. It changes quickly. The impact of technology is extreme. But there are people who want to have you believe that as humans, we've evolved over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, our, we process information, the way we make decisions. And, you know, those take tens of thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not tens of years. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, all the tools, all, all the tools that are available to, to salespeople today. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that it's really, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm not, I, I don't think they're being used well in the sense, you know, that, uh, and that's a whole other topic we could talk a long, long time, but, but bottom line is that, is that we need to equip people to be great at communicating with other people. And, yep. and, and that's not about technology Although technology can support that, Absolutely. it's really about people about people talking to people, and then this goes right up into management too. I mean, so how does how does a sales manager manage the sales team? Well, today it's a lot different than it was when I was a sales a sales guy way back, you know, forty years ago, where there was a lot more of a human touch, or you know, human. And I, I do think that's a huge thing that's missing, uh, you know, from you know from sales organizations is that real, you know, human-centered approach, not only to selling, but also to managing. Couldn't agree more. But the people yeah. that are successful are those who are doing it. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so, and this is, this is, you know, part of the message we're trying to get out is, is yeah. that, yeah, maybe the exception these days of people who act that way, managers, sales leaders, individual contributors, but they are the ones who are most consistently successful. That's and right. That's right. So, yeah. They buck the system. They they they, they 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 resist doing what the what the sheep are doing. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, one of the one of the themes of my new book. So, uh, oh, brilliant! I can't wait to see it. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll make sure you get an early copy. Thank All you, right, Scott. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure as always. Thank um, you. People want to connect with you. What's the best way to do that? 
Well, they can go to our website, uh, which is wrpartnership.com. Um, we've got our two books that are out also that are advertised on there as well. Um, they can go and find our books on Amazon, Decision Intelligence, Selling, and uh, Sell Well, Do Good. And uh, all the contact details are in there as well. So, All right. Thank Scott, you so much. Thank you very much. All the best, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Scott Roy, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.